Whether you're joining us live streaming here at the Brentwood campus or if you watch this at a later time online, we are glad you are here uh, with us at this time or in the future. And, you know, nothing can thwart God's will, God's word, or God's work. Nothing. Not sin, not you, not me, not pestilence, not war, not ISIS, not ISIL, not Hamas, not evil, not disease, not Ebola. Nothing can stop God's word, God's will, and God's work. You and I as believers in Christ are consumed by the horizontal view of life. We all are. We're creatures of a broken system. And we wake up concerned about the stuff of the day. We wake up concerned about our marriage, our children, our jobs, our single, if we're a single man, our single life. Are, are we going to remarry? What are we going to do about the treatments, the disease we have, cancer, whatever we're fighting? What are we going to do about relationships that are difficult, our future, our plans? Where will we live, our job? And we live life on a horizontal level far more than we want to acknowledge. But as believers in Jesus Christ who have bought and been redeemed, uh, we have a relationship with him to live a life differently than the world. And that's one reason fellowship and community and opening scripture is so vital to who we are. You get one chance a week for a small time to recalibrate why we're here, what we're supposed to be about. And the rest of the week, we fight an unstoppable battle. The challenge for all of us is that we work hard to make this a comfortable life. And forgetting the long view is that we have eternal life. It's so horizontal, it's so daily, it's so now, it's so in our face to rest assured in our relationship with Christ that Christ's will is at work through his word is academic, not a reality. The Israelites were no different in Ezra chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I would ask you to open to Ezra chapter 5. If you're using an electronic version of it, click and find your way there. Ezra chapter 5 in real Bibles follows 1st and 2nd Chronicles. <laughs> and you'll find a little book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 5 is a book at one level that gives us some very accurate <laughs> historical data. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But it is of interest only to those of us who like such things. On an applicational level, Ezra is the story of rebuilding the temple of God. Under a sovereignly orchestrated order, God said, rebuild the temple while the rulers who are controlling it are pagan. God is in, we, let's call it a chess game. In God's chess game, bad metaphor, but stay with me, he is orchestrating a win using pagans. That's what's happening at the high theological level, and I hope to apply it somewhat to you and me as we understand what this means beyond the data we find out from it and how it applies in the book of, of uh, Ezra. And, and Derek Kidner writes, like every spiritual advance, from Abraham's to the missionary expansion in the book of Acts, this venture began with a word from the Lord. And in common with the rest, it was quickly tested and threatened. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, God's word is at work. Let me read it and we'll talk a little bit about what's going on. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The work of restoration had been halted for about 15 years. They've come out of captivity, seven years captivity. They started rebuilding the complex, and there's been a, a halt in the process. Opposition has arisen, and it stopped. So for 15, 16 years, they're not building the temple complex. God then speaks to two men, Haggai and Zechariah. They're two minor prophets almost at the New Testament as you go to the end of your Old Testament. They're short books. They're very difficult books because they're upbraiding Israel because Israel, Haggai, the first chapter of Haggai, he's saying, you're not building God's temple, but you're living in luxury. You're materially prosperous. You're spiritually bankrupt. Get out of your paneled houses and go rebuild the house of God. Why? Because that's where worship occurs. We might say it this way. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping their sin. They're satisfying their own longings and needs, not building the temple complex that God had ordered them to do. When God chose a prophet like Haggai or Zechariah, the word of the Lord comes to him. He's speaking for God. When you read these pages, these paragraphs, you're reading, as Dr. Hendricks often said, not what God would say if he was here, what God is saying because he is here. You're reading the very word of God. So the instruction came to these two prophets, their contemporaries, 520 B.C. We know down to the months these books were written, not only because of the biblical historicity, but what we're going to see in, in small part here in Ezra chapter 5 today. You'll notice that in the face of opposition, uh, we retreat, we go back to it. And the parallel for you and me in our Christian life, when we set out to obey God, whether it's in our marriage, in our sexual purity, in the way we handle money, I always go back to money, sex, and power, the three umbrellas. When we head out to obey God in those areas and we hit opposition, what do we do? We retreat to sin. Because if it doesn't work for us, our sin nature wins the, the day, we might say, and we choose then to sin, precisely what Israel did. When we choose to sin, we become self-absorbed. When we become self-absorbed, we care less about worshiping God, obeying his word, following Christ as our leader, example, and king. Notice in chapter 5, verse 2, the phrase, God's prophets, the, the, the God's word was supporting them. I find this interesting because God's word is a reprimand primarily in Haggai. Zechariah is not quite as hard. Haggai is a rough book. And it's wagging the finger at the Israelites. You're not building the temple complex like you were commanded by God. He got you out of captivity to bring you back to build it, and you're not doing it. Get to work. And so the work then resumes. You know, there are a thousand reasons not to obey God. There's one reason to obey him. And you know the reason. But there, maybe there's 15,000 reasons not to obey God. But there's one. Because he spoke and he said and he gave us his word. He didn't stutter or sputter. He didn't miscommunicate. He didn't contradict. And you and I have the choice of aligning ourselves or not. So God's word is at work. Secondly, worldly power threatens the work. Look at verses 3 through 5. Worldly power threatens the work. 
At the time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, trans-Euphrates we might say, beyond the river, and Shitar Bosniai, along with their colleagues, came to them and spoke to them thus. Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and finish the structure? Then uh, he told, uh, we told them, according to the names of the men who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius and when a written reply be returned concerning it. So God has, uh, if you will, punished them in a sense through, uh, literally through the uh, Babylonian captivity. They've come out of captivity. They started building. They stalled for 15 years. He uses Haggai and Zechariah to say, get back to work. They come back to work and immediately they, they face opposition. So on the one hand, it can say, okay, Lord, wait a minute. We, we, we did wrong. We went astray. We've confessed and repented. We're coming back, and now we get opposition again? What? This isn't right. I mean, come on. Give us a break, one might argue. The restoration of the temple complex was a big job, but now it's being, uh, it's being set in this fashion from Tatanai as a threat. Now, these leaders who came and uh, asked them what they're doing are not just some bunch of brigands that want to know what's going on. This would represent the political and military power of the Persian Empire. Uh, these were serious questions. Verse 3, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? If you've ever built a building or added an addition on your home or you're in commercial real estate and you want to do something, if you've ever dealt with uh, zoning and codes and building inspectors and government regulations, you know exactly what's going on here. Uh, it's always about power and control. There's some person that has a clipboard and a piece of paper, and he or she will not sign off on something, and it kills you. Now, you put that feeling along with military power behind it. And that's who the Jews, who were in the process of restarting the rebuilding, are now facing with this question. We look at this area of land um, uh, Darius comes from ancient Iran. This would be pre-Islam. Islam, Islam doesn't, didn't exist. And you look at what's going on in that area with Syria and ancient Palestine, Israel today with Palestinians and Hamas, and now, of course, all the ISIL and ISIS debate. This is all in that area. It's still going on. And I believe it will always go on and it will always rage until Christ returns. The warfare to them was as real as the way we fit, feel the threat of terror today. Obviously, the tools and technology were different, but the tactics were not. The psychological games were not any different at all. Well, in spite of the challenge, the work does not stop because verse 5, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jew. The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. I encourage you to take notes in your Bible. I encourage you to write all over your Bible. That's why I don't like the electronic versions because you can't interact with it the same. And to me, when I open a Bible, because people leave Bibles all the time, we have a beautiful set of lost and found Bibles with no names. By the way, put your name in the front of your Bible. Right now, just do it. Write your name in the front of your Bible with your phone number, for goodness sakes. We've got $200 Bibles sitting over there with no name in them and 10 programs. I guess you don't miss your Bible. But uh, put your name in your Bible and then learn to write in it. Write all over it. And if your mother or some person told you don't write in a book, I absolve you. I absolve you. <laughs> write in your Bible. Take notes in your Bible. It will increase your understanding of Scripture and your relationship with God. I promise you. Now, why I say that? The word I is the first anthropomorphic term we have here. God's looking at you. 
So how does the Holy Spirit have Ezra craft that? The eye of the Lord. We're going to see six more times the hand of God. You don't want to miss those when you're reading through a book like this that admittedly is a little difficult to read. So this is where you got to put on your thinking cap a little bit. So in my Bible, the word hand is circled, the word house is circled, there's lines connecting dots. It looks like a child got a hold of a bunch of markers and wrote all over my Bible and yours should look the same. That's the end of that sermon. Okay, now, step back for a moment. They started re rebuilding and opposition has occurred, but God's eye is on them. Again, Kidner. But the eye of their God was upon them. What, God, what God's word has set in motion as ever has no lack of his care. Hear that again. What God's word has set in motion as ever is no lack of his care. His watchful eye to seeing it through. The only, at this stage, only fear could have stopped the work. When we're confronted with, will you obey God at his word in your marriage? Will you obey God in his word in your sexual purity? Will you obey God in his word with being a truthful person? Will you obey God in his word fill in the blank? The only thing that keeps us from obeying him is fear. Because we're going to face some opposition, internal conflict. I want to sin. I'd rather sin than obey. I don't want that. I want justice, not grace. I want justice, not mercy. And so the churn becomes, well, if I don't do that, or I'm afraid of people, how they'll respond if I stick to my guns and say, no, this is the way I'm going to live my life. Our faith in God is not in our experience or our circumstance. It cannot be. My experiences and my circumstances rarely, if ever, align with helping me trust Christ. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Your experience in life, the way people deal with you, your business, your parenting, your marriage, life in general, is rarely, if ever, going to help your Christian faith. That's why community is so important. Because I need other people in the same vein, going in the same direction with the same issues who are trying to be faithful with all of the same pressures. When you're going up against a force that doesn't believe you, we're becoming a minority whether you know it or not. And when you come up against a force that will tell you you can't be a believer in Christ, you can't impose your hateful things upon me, will you, like the Jews, walk away from the work? Or will you say, Okay, this is opposition. It shouldn't be a surprise. I'm afraid, but I stand faithful. God's word is at work. Worldly powers threaten the work. And then thirdly, we have this king, uh, Darius, a letter that uh, uh, Tatani writes to him. I want you to look at your Bible for a second. This, this takes, some of you who are Bible students know this. Some of us who maybe are newer to a scripture might miss this. This is a complicated book for a number of reasons. One, because of the time differentials that occur. But secondly, we have in chapter uh, 5 a great example of where uh, the author Ezra is going to take a document that was written by someone else and put it in his paper. If you're writing a research paper and you take a, a large quote from some periodical and you drop it in your document, that's what he's doing here. This is a letter that Tatani writes to King Darius. Look at it carefully and you'll see in verse 6 when I read it. This is a copy of the letter which Tatani, the gover governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnia and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. See it? If you read that quickly, you're going to miss it. 
So he's taking a copy of that letter and he's inserting it in the inerrant Word of God, which raises all kinds of great Bible study questions. It's how do we use information like this? Let's look at what he writes in here. Verse uh, 7. They sent a report to him in which it was written to Darius, the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house, that word circled in my Bible, hint, 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 the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams, which are laid, uh, being laid in the walls. And this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Up to this point, it's a report that the building had been going on. And he's, the governor, a Persian jurisdiction governor, Tatanai, is writing back to King Darius in Persia that this is what's happening under the, by the Jews. Verse 9. Then we asked, Tatanai and his, his colleagues, those elders, and said to them, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and finish the structure? Now, first of all, why would they be, why would they care? Remember, they've been in captivity. Uh, Darius lets a percentage of them go back to their home to rebuild their temple complex. One theory, it's just a theory, is that in the words, huge stones and these beams kind of hint at that. It, this, is, this is no small building project. This is a big effort. This is a big project. And it might, could possibly be, the 1% guess. It could be they feared a militarization going on in Jerusalem. If they're bringing in stones that got to be rolled, the word huge stones means they have to be rolled, they're so large. They're rolled in and beams in the walls. It sounds like maybe they're not building a temple. Maybe they're building some kind of fortress and they're going to rebuild themselves as a military force to fight us. One percent idea, but it gives you a hint of why perhaps they're concerned and they would oppose it. Verse 10, we also asked from them names so as to inform you and that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. Now, anybody who's, again, if you don't know bureaucracy, you've just met it. We want inspections. We want codes. I want the names. I want the names of the people involved in this project. You know, it's not just NSA. It's been going on from antiquity. We want to know where you are, who you are, what you're doing, what side you're on. It's nothing new under the sun. Thus they, were, they answered us saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that, that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Now, it's interesting how Tatanai writes their answer because the, the name Solomon isn't in there. But if you know your Bible, the great king who rebuilt, who built the complex was Solomon. But there's also this little hint, and you wouldn't know it otherwise, but it's fun to look at. The God of heaven and earth. Um, Iran at that time was under a god named Ahur Mazda. A-H-U-R is where we write, write it. Ahur Mazda, not the Japanese car company. But uh, Ahur Mazda was the supreme god of heaven and earth. So when the Jews tell uh, Tatnai what they're doing, we're rebuilding the temple of the great, the great house of God, the God of heaven and earth. It's a, it's a jab back at the Persian government. So, you may let us be here under your jurisdiction. We're not worshiping your Persian gods. We're worshiping Yahweh Elohim. That's why we're here to rebuild the center of worship. And so it would be a sharp stick in the eye to them, and they probably caught the message. Verse 
12, but because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also, the gold and silver utensils of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon. These King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom was appointed governor. He said to them, take these utensils and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt in that place. Then Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem and from the utensils now it has been under construction and it has not yet completed. Now if it pleases the king let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house which is there in Babylon. If it, uh, if it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send to us his decision concerning the matter. The big pictures. The adversaries come why are you doing this? Where do you get permission to do this? Well, Cyrus gave us permission. So Tathanai and his entourage write a letter back to King Darius going, did you in fact tell them that they could rebuild this? Darius is then asked to go back and look in the archives. Go back and look at the library. Can you find this decree that Cyrus signed off on? Make sense? So this is what's happening in the big picture of Ezra 5. They had, had been in trouble for 15 years, not building. They resume the building, they meet opposition. The opposition comes in a military bureaucracy that tries to stop them. Tatanai writes a letter back to uh, the Persian king Darius and says, did Cyrus make this decree? And if so, can you produce it? And we'll see in chapter 6, he can produce it and it, the work will then go forward. The world is going to threaten you and me. The world is going to threaten us when we hold to any type of position. Um, I don't know if you've... Uh, watched or felt it. Um, but, but in America, our view of Christianity has become so mushy. And we've, we've sort of been beaten over the head with the tolerance police. We've been vilified for being hateful in our speech because we, we hate gays or we hate this, which is untrue. But that's a great way to pick a fight. And so the Christian continues to be marginalized and unsure of our footing. And I would say analogous, we are not building the temple. Now, we're not building a temple. But we're certainly not building the kingdom of God. God's will and God's work are going to be accomplished by his word with or without us. But the question for the individual believer is, will we be part of that or not? It doesn't hang in the balance on you and me, but he wants to use you and me. Christianity is an amalgamation. It's shocking how many Christians can tolerate so many things today. We are becoming the most tolerant people on the planet because we have to embrace everything else or we're hateful. I don't know if you saw the movie Life of Pi. I'm not endorsing it. I watched it several times, read the, the script a number of times, read about it a number of times. It captivated me for a lot of reasons. It's a beautiful uh, visual movie. It's magnificent subterfuge spiritually. It's a story of a little boy Pi who's raised Hindu and he tells in the, in the script and the story, Vishnu led him to meet Jesus Christ. He becomes a Christian, but God's not done with him. Then he becomes a Muslim, and on the story goes, and he's just amalgamating these different religious systems as he's going through life, life of pie. 
And there's this fabulous scene at this family dinner with the father who represents rationalism, the mother who's the endearing, let them find their way, philosophy of life, the brother who's just a, a, comedy, a, a comic, and Pi. And Pi is explaining why he is doing all these things, and his father jokes with him and says, Pi, soon your whole life will be one long holiday. You'll have Christian holidays, Muslim holidays, Hindu holidays. Pi at one point says there are 330 million gods in the Hindu system. It seems like I should get to know some of them. And the discussion around this dinner table is a great illustration of what's happened to biblical Christianity. Because the father is arguing for reason. He says, science and reason have brought us further than any religion, Pi. You should understand that rationalism, and he's the voice. And, and you're, you're tipped by the arguments each one of them is making. And um, at the end of the conversation, after the, he goes, do you understand, Pi? The father asks him, because he's arguing for reason and rationalism. And Pi says, yes. And there's a pregnant pause. And then he goes, I think I would like to be baptized. What is the author saying? What am I working at? You see the sticker coexist? It's not as prominent as it used to be. The bumper sticker coexist? It's the same thing. And, and what, what these groups are telling us, what these forms of art and expression and Hollywood and literature are selling us, is that it's not as, as banal as all roads lead to God, but it's pretty close. The message is you must tolerate everything and everything is true, and there cannot be one truth. All of this is true. It's Hegelian. All of this is true. But there's a big rub. Three world religions hold to monotheism. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Hindus got 330 million gods. The Egyptians, they stopped chronicling them after 8,000 gods. Um, and when you look at other cultures and our systems, uh, their view is a syncretistic view. Let's just bolt it on and add it on. So what's happening in the West to the Christian mind? You know, if they're really good Mormons, they're really good Muslims, they're really good Jehovah's Witnesses, they're really good whatever, they're really good fill in the blank, they're Methylbacterians, whatever they are, it's okay if they're just good. Judaism and Islam would say, no, they're not. Now it gets complicated because the Jews worship the same God we do, but not quite. Is the God the Jews worship the same God that Islam worships? There's a huge movement among Christians. Uh, translators are not exempt from this to change the words Yahweh Elohim to Allah in their translations because they don't want to offend Muslim cultures. Now, I'm not for going out and offending people, and I'm not going out to say we should be hateful. Please don't hear me say that. I am saying, can you stand in your faith and believe what you believe, tolerating kindly with love those who disagree with you, but not backing off of what you believe. That's the challenge. God's work is going to happen through his word. God's will is going to happen through his word. God's word is what instructs you and me to be recalibrated to this. God's will and his work are going to be accomplished with or without you and me. The question is, do we want to be part of it? The passage to me is le leads me with the question, and to make the transition, stay with me a second. Do I love sin more than God? For the Jew, when he or she hit that opposition in the rebuilding, they went home 
And Haggai chapter 1, if you want to read this afternoon, will give you insight on how he excoriates and rebuffs them for living in luxury, but spiritually they're impoverished. And then they are to resume the work. What happens? When we face opposition, we retreat to sin. We retreat to self. We become self-absorbed. When you're self-absorbed, it's diagnostic. We don't care about God. We don't care about others. We don't care about certainly hanging out with those Christian weirdos. I mean, let's, just, let's acknowledge we're all weird. I mean, if you're in this room, you're, you're weird. You're a moron in the world's view. Paul even calls himself a fool for Christ's sake. It's the word moros, moros, moronic. We're morons. We're foolish. Welcome to the club. It's a good club to be in. But do I love sin more than my Savior? Because when I hit opposition, when you hit opposition, what's our tendency? If it doesn't work, if injustice happened, my husband does this, my wife does that, my son does that, my daughter does that, the job's unfair, the job's unjust, I have cancer, I'm going to die, I have these treatments to go through, life's not fair, it's broken, it doesn't work, I'm going to go do what I want to do. Every one of us identifies with that. And that question, I tell you, be a student of your sin. In my heart and mind, that question is, Michael, do you love your sin more than you love your Savior? And you know what we have to answer? Sometimes yes. Sometimes yes. I love my sin more than my Savior. What a horrible way to live, though. What a horrible way to live. He forgives. He restores every time. I often think about consequences to sin. If God gave us one-to-one -one consequences, I, I think about weird things. You, if you've heard me preach at all, you know that I'm a very weird person, and I think about weird things. But I wonder, if God punished me one for one for every sin I committed, what would happen to me? I would probably have lost all my limbs and sight a long time ago. And the fact that he forgives us, it should be like the most amazing experience in our life that simply because we ask for forgiveness, he grants it to us. And we're passe about it. I know he'll forgive me if I sin. 1 John 1, 9 is my get-out-of-jail-free card. Doesn't matter what I do. I know I shouldn't do it. I know it's selfish. I know it's wrong. In the moment, I might feel a little guilt and shame. I'll ask forgiveness later. The Jews' larger difference for you and me is they did not have the Spirit indwelling them permanently. Certainly they did when they walked in fellowship, but not the same way we do. And we underestimate, I think, His Word and His Spirit in our lives. But I cannot overstate, as a believer in Christ, He wants to use you in His work. You will not find satisfaction in a life of sin, nor will I. It is temporary, and it is insatiable. That's why a person doesn't sin once and stops sinning. Because it cannot be satisfied. The money, sex, and power of our world are insatiable. And you're to live in a world, not of a world. They were to live in the land of Israel to rebuild the temple complex with pressures around them, as are we. We're not building a physical temple. We are the temple of Jesus Christ. We are the body. But we're to live in such a way that reflects on our Savior. The question to leave you and me with is, do I lo love God more than my sin?
And if you answer that, no, I don't love God more than my sin, good for you. Now what are you going to do about it? Will you stand in the opposition? When they criticize you, when they make fun of you, when all your friends say, divorce the idiot. When everyone else says, it's no big deal to lose your virginity. It's no big deal to experiment sexually with same-sex attraction. It's no big deal. Or will you have the courage to say, you know, I know that's what the world says, but that's my sinful appetite, and Christ loves me, and he died to deliver me from that lie. And there's no satisfaction in those lifestyles. There's no satisfaction in those, in those lanes of sin. And don't forget, his eye is upon you. He cares. He loves. Thank goodness he doesn't have a hammer, and he's not looking to kill us like whack-a-mole. He loves you. He cares about you. So as you leave today, pray. Ask him for help. He will help you. Surround yourself with people of like mind. You have to have that to do this. You can't do it alone. You will fail living the Christian life by yourself. But you surround yourself with people who love him, who limp along and say, it's hard. I want to be truthful. I want to be committed to my marriage. I want to live in a way that honors Christ and God's people. I need help. Will you help me? Sure. If you can't find those friends in this room, you'll never find them anywhere. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that at times when it's complex and we get lost in it, we can come back to the central points that we know of your word. You've spoken. It is reliable. It is factual. It is historical. And if we've trusted you for our salvation, why would we not trust you for our sanctification? Help us to grow, to be graceful, merciful people, to be evaluated more like Jesus Christ than our pictures and identities of what that means. We need your help desperately. Thanks that you're watching and helping and cheering us on. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.